As we come to the scripture, let me ask you please now to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we pray that now as we open the scripture that you would graciously help us. Um, lots of distractions, just naturally speaking. Many distractions, even spiritually speaking. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, perhaps even in surprising ways on this morning, cause our hearts, minds, to be focused upon you in such a way that we would be inclined to trust you, uh, inclined to worship you, inclined to listen to you, inclined to believe. And so I pray that you would help us strengthen, if you will, our faith, enable us to persevere, give us great grace, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Daniel in chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, please. Another one of these visions that Daniel sees. Not quite as um, um, odd to us to read, I suppose, as that one was. More detail here you will see. Daniel chapter 8, please. Listen, this is the word of God. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. And both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and and the goat had a conspicuous Horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, <clears throat> excuse me, and he was engaged, enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. But then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression and it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary 
sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful states. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep and my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And as for the horn that was broken, in place of the four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. All right, here we have another vision. A bit of an easier one, I think, because we have more detail. He kind of tells us about some of these things which Daniel is seeing. It's apocalyptic literature, as we said last Sunday. So it's trying to get us to feel, not just to think, but to feel these things, to to get a sense of them. That's why the the pictures, that's why um, the vision. uh, Always the question, of course, is what did Daniel get from this? What did the people who read it get from this? What are we... To really get from this. By way of outline. Pretty straightforward. First 14 verses lay out what Daniel saw. After that an interpretation. Uh, and then Daniel's response. How he responded. Um, how he responded to that. Uh, we see. Just kind of fill this in. We see it's the third year. Of uh, King uh, Belshazzar. And we know that. Um, uh, Belshazzar. Uh, along the way. Succeeded Nebuchadnezzar. This wasn't probably the easiest uh, king for Daniel uh, to work with and for. We, we, we realize that Nebuchadnezzar was one who, when God spoke to him through these various means, and he received the interpretation, the understanding of that, he was, he was humbled. He, he, he often then said, let Daniel's God be worshipped and all of that. So, so you get a sense of respect for Daniel by Nebuchadnezzar. Not so much with Belshazzar. In 10 years, we're going to come to a passage, a time at least, where we've already read of it from this handwriting on the wall. He was the king at that point in time. 
He was the one who blasphemously took the goblets from the temple and used them to toast his own gods. Uh, uh, he was the one who had forgotten Daniel. So, so Daniel's working for this king. He's in process of really being marginalized, being forgotten. Uh, this king isn't one to whom the Lord speaks. He's not one who's humbled by the Lord. He's one that will also be, ultimately be judged, if you will. So, so that's the setting of this particular uh, vision that we have. Uh, it's about 550 Ish BC, Daniel's probably around 70 ish. We think he's been serving in Babylon for 50 plus, 55 years or so, if you think about that, holding one job uh, for that long a period of time. And so that's. That's the state that Daniel uh, finds himself. He sees himself in Susa, the capital. He's probably not there. This is the vision, remember? This isn't, uh, he's, he's not there in Susa, but that's, for whatever reason, that's where this all takes place, this capital uh, city. And he sees a couple of different animals, animals not so beastly-like. I mean, we're familiar with rams and goats, uh, as opposed to the beasts that we saw in the previous one. Uh, so you get a little sense of more normalcy. With this one, uh, we see a ram. I uh, got a couple of horns, one bigger than the other. Uh, you see powerful uh, nation, if you will, kingdom, it appears. Uh, no one can can stop this ram. Then this goat shows up with a horn in the middle between his eyes. And, and, uh, and he's able to overtake the ram. But yet when he becomes powerful, sort of at his height, he seems to be broken. The horn, is, this horn is broken, dies, if you will. And uh, then four more come, four more horns uh, come uh, after after him. But then this little horn again. This little horn seems to be getting uh, a great deal of press. We had a little horn in the last one, a little horn in this one. Uh, we don't know if they're the exactly same little horns, but, but, but we get the sense that, that this little horn that comes up out of these others is, is, is significant. And, and here we see not simply... Some, some sort of physical stuff going on, but spiritual language, spiritual language uh, as well, just as we have before. Uh, all of a sudden, we're talking about this glorious land. We're talking about the host of heaven. Uh, that is the heavenly host, the angels, perhaps, or, or even those who belong to heaven, that sense of it. Uh, stars being thrown down from the ground and trampled on them. This great prince of the host of heaven uh, being challenged. Uh, and then, and then uh, aspects of worship. The, the burnt offering was taken away. The place of the sanctuary was, was uh, overthrown. Um, the host, these ones belonging to heaven, would be given over to the, to the little horn as we see it. Because of transgression, the burnt offerings would be taken away. Truth would be thrown to the ground. And so, so we're getting this sense of, all right, maybe in that first one, I'm just seeing maybe nations fighting against it. But there's something deeper going on here. There's a spiritual thing happening here as well. And, and, and then the question, how long is this all going to take? And we get this detailed, but we wonder what it means, answer, 2,300 uh, uh, evenings and mornings. So then Daniel, scratching his head, says, help me understand. And so if someone there speaks to Gabriel, Gabriel uh, lay this out for him. And 
Then Daniel goes to sleep for some reason. I don't know if just the tension got to him finally. And so he goes to sleep and you're I'm kind of happy for Daniel at that point. Uh, but then he's woken up and, uh, and, and, and now all this is, is being laid out uh, to him. And, 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 and this one who's laying all this out for him says, now, this is about a particular time, the time of the end. No, when you and I, because of where we sit here, the end, we think the end end. That's the natural thing for us to think. But for Daniel, he didn't necessarily think the end end, but to think the end of this, the end of this time that's being described for me with my people, these 2300 days, the end of that period of time. When, when, when is that? So, so that's more likely, it's more likely contained to this period of time rather than the end end, though it may have some ramifications, no pun intended about the ram, uh, implications would be better, um, uh, for that as well. But, but then he gets some detail. He says, all right, here's the ram. Has two horns. That's the Medo-Persian Empire. One's bigger than the other. Comes last. Probably the Persians bigger and came last. And, and he says, here they are. And, and, and they're, very, they're very powerful. Then the goat that comes along that has one horn. The goat is Greece. And the, and, and the one horn is its first king. And we go, okay. I wonder. That sounds like. You know, Alexander the Great. It sounds like the first king, great king, and describes a little bit about uh, this uh, various, this various one. We we saw that uh, uh, you know at least before that he comes very rapidly. His you know his feet don't even touch the ground, and that was certainly the case that Alexander the Great conquered a great deal in a very short period of time. When he seemed to be at the height of its power, he died, and then. Four other kingdoms, he said, and, and the horn uh, that was broken, in place of which four others arose. Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation. Ultimately, four of his commanders uh, kind of divvied it up and they took different sections and, and they were commanders. And so, OK, that that makes sense. Perhaps we can follow that. And and um, and then at the latter end of their kingdom, so a little ways down the road sometime uh, when the transgressors have reached their limit, we're not quite sure. Who's the transgressors here? It could be these these ones, this little horn or others. It could be the even the Jews themselves being transgressors. Likely that, I would suppose. And later in their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, kind of, you can look at his face and go, don't mess with him, who understands riddles, that is, he's very wise and clever, shall arise and his power shall be great, but, but not by his own power. So where is he getting his power? Well, we know that God is the one who, who causes nations to rise and fall. So God in one sense. But, but as we see his power, we wonder if there isn't someone else that's empowering him, this very one, Satan. And not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction. Destruction is one thing. But you, he's a terrorist in a sense, right? Fearful destruction. And he shall succeed in what he does. So he's going to be successful and destroy mighty men uh, and the people who are the saints. Those who are at that point in time believers. We suspect at that point in time believing Jews, but believers, if you will. So by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. So you realize he's deceitful and he's successfully deceitful. All right. His deceit works. He's a liar. He's disingenuous. He's dishonest. He's manipulative. He's all of that. And so it's going to work for him. 
uh, it's going to prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. So he thinks highly of himself. He's arrogant. He's like one of these people who never thinks they're wrong. He's not approachable. He doesn't really listen. He's, he's, just, he, he's just right all the time. He's great in his own mind. And without warning, he shall destroy many. So again, it comes as a surprise to them. He's this terrorist, if you will, as we would understand. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. That is God himself. And he shall be broken, but by no human hands. Now, we also know from what was discussed before that this, this very one will, will deal with the temple. He'll take away the regular burnt offerings, the regular sacrifices. He'll overthrow the sanctuary, uh, whatever that means. At least people being unable to come into the very presence of God through the, through the temple. And, uh, and, and he'll throw down or he'll destroy the truth that undergirds all of that. That's his, his, very, his very sense here. And then, he says, seal it up for later. Seal it up for later. This is going to help somebody, uh, but it's going to help people down the road when they're able to see it. Now, from history, um, we know this sounds a great deal like this one. Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, as he took on that name, as well, he would come in the second century. In fact, in fact, many people now think that this passage was written in the second century B.C. Because, because how would Daniel know it otherwise? We know that the Bible is full of, of, of passages that are predictive, if you will, that tells us what's going to happen down the road. And, and so when Antiochus shows up, uh, then uh, this could well be unsealed and be a great comfort to the people during that time. Now, Antiochus was exactly as they have him here. In fact, um, Sinclair Ferguson, a preacher of some notes in the U.S. these days, writes about him. He says this. He says, What then of Antiochus? He came to power in 175 B.C. So you get the proportion there. If Daniel's in the 550-ish B.C., this is down the road a bit. Uh, 175 B.C. So it gives time for... All these other things to take place. Alexander the Great, the other four kingdoms to come up. And in their latter sort of times for this one to, to appear, this one Antiochus the fourth, uh, succeeding his brother. He was, in fact, uh, Antiochus, Antiochus um, the fourth Epiphanes was a blasphemous title. He arrogated to himself later in his reign. Theos, um, Antiochus, Epiphanes meaning the illustrious God, although others called him uh, Epimenus, meaning the madman. Even then, there were nicknames for politicians. Power-hungry, Antiochus sought to expand his dominion to include Palestine. This brought him into conflict with the uh, Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt. In Jerusalem, he replaced the high priest with a man of his own choosing. And then he invaded Egypt. And while there, a rumor of his death circulated among the Jews, much to their joy. Efforts were made to reinstate the genuine high priest. Antiochus accused the people of rebellion, savagely attacked and sacked Jerusalem, and executed tens of thousands of its inhabitants. 40,000 apparently dying within the space of three days while others were taken captive. He entered the Holy of Holies in the temple, 
sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offering, defiled the temple precincts, took the sacred furniture, uh, and established a traitor, Menelaus, as high priest. In 168 BC, when Antiochus' uh, efforts to take uh, Egypt were foiled by the Romans, he again vented his revenge on the Jews. More than 20,000 of his soldiers massacred the Jews assembled for worship on a Sabbath day and committed further atrocities and vandalism. The temple was left without daily sacrifices. Religious practices were non-existent. A statue of Zeus was placed in the temple and human sacrifices were made on the altar. Circumcision was forbidden. Unclean meat was mandatory fare. And the Sabbath and other feast days were profaned. The psalmist describes a similar, though earlier, uh, perhaps less awful situation from Psalm 79. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Your holy temple they've defiled. They've laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they've given as food for the birds of the heavens. The flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. We've become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. It was in the context that Judas Maccabees and his followers began the nationalistic exploits. This very one, um, Antiochus Epiphanes, died under mysterious circumstances while returning from Persia. He contracted an exceedingly painful disease, which according to the accounts of one Maccabees, was covered by deep and unmitigated psychological anguish. And this is that time in the history of Israel when the, the Maccabees, whose name meant, O God, who is like you. Uh, there is no one like you, O God. When they overtook these who had so persecuted them and uh, reconsecrated the temple and thus the celebration of Hanukkah. And so... Many think, yes, this is that, that very one. So it was sealed up in such a way that when the day came, those in Israel and Judah would read it and they would say, oh, yes, look, look, this very one will die. He will be overtaken. Uh, you can only imagine as, as Daniel gets this, uh, gets this vision. Here he is. I mean, let's push all the way back to 550. Here he is. He's in exile. The temple hasn't even been rebuilt yet. That's the longing of his heart. And then he realizes that a day is going to come some centuries later when they're going to be in a, in, in a, in a sense the same pickle where his people will transgress God in such a way that this evil one really, this Antiochus the fourth, will come against them and, and, and not destroy the temple utterly, but essentially destroy it. Take away its very meaning, take away its very purpose, take away the, the sanctuary for where they were to meet, take away the place of sacrifice where they can come before God, to take away all of that, to, to, to destroy their truth. And, 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 and you can only imagine his, his broken heart and then it's sealed it up. So, what's it really mean for us? You know, when I hear that sense of sealing it up, I can't help but think of Jesus on that night that he was betrayed. He was with his disciples. And he said to them, uh, I say these things to you so that you won't go astray. I tell you these things so that when they happen, you'll know that I told you. 
That's in John chapter 16. If you have a Bible or something, some electronic device, uh, take a look. John chapter 16, in verse 1. This is the middle of Jesus' time with them. He's about to leave and, and he's, 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 he's just told them some what could be very frightening things. He's basically said to them, he's leaving them. He's basically said to them, because they hated me, they'll hate you. So he's telling them all that ahead of time. He says, listen, if you're with me, then because they've hated me, they'll hate you guilt, if you will, by association, you know. And so he says to them, verse 1, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away because Jesus is wise. As God was wise with the people in Daniel's day and thus in the generations to follow to say, I want to tell you this so that you're not naive. I want to tell you this so you know what's going to happen. I want to tell you this so that when it happens, you won't in a sense be surprised. When I tell you this, you won't fall away. A little word fall away that Jesus uses here is, is a Greek word, skandalizo. You can hear the word scandalize. So you won't be scandalized so that you won't be tripped up really. Because you see these things that come, uh, the persecution that might come, the being ostracized that might come, being living in a society where being a Christian is, is no longer looked on as a favorable thing. He says, he says, I don't want that to trip you up. I don't want you to be naive. I don't want you to think that that means I don't care. That I, that doesn't mean I'm not sovereign. That that doesn't mean that the kingdom hasn't come. That that doesn't mean that I'll triumph. I, I don't want you to fall away. I don't want you to be tricked. I don't want you to be tripped up like that. When I was a little kid, I had a fascination with the squirrels in my backyard. And I so wanted to catch one. So I chased, you know, they're really hard to catch. So then I made a trap. I got a box, being a smart kid. And I attached a string to it, a long string to it. And I got what I thought squirrels might eat. And I got a stick and I propped this box up on the stick and I, I tied the rope to the stick and I put the food in there and I went to hide. And so my plan was, never worked, my plan was when the squirrel went in the box, I'd pull the stick. Now if I was a Greek little boy, I would call my stick the scandalizo. That's the trap. And the stick that the evil one uses very often is this sense of persecution. Does God really love you? If he really loved you, why are you suffering so? Uh, If God really loved you, why would things not be going better for you in the culture in which you live? If God really loved you, why wouldn't more people agree with you about this faith that you have? If God really loved... And that's the trick. That's the trap. And so Jesus said, there's no small print in the gospel. It's all big print. And so he says, what I want you to know is, here's the possibility. And even the probability, most especially for his disciples, those in particular, but in some sense for the rest of us throughout the ages. He says, listen, because they hated me, they'll hate you. In fact, he goes on to say this, they'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think, will think he's offering service to God. In other words, These who come against you are going to actually think they're right morally. They're going to think that God agrees with them. And they're doing this in the name of God in some sense. And so they're going to put you out. 
Now don't think I've left you. Don't think they've won. Don't be tricked by that. Peter says, don't be surprised when there are fiery trials. Sometimes these are social, sometimes they're economic, sometimes they're physical, sometimes they're more subtle than that. And you know the things that can discourage us uh, in, in life, whether it be cancer, whether it be difficulties in relationships, whether it be loneliness, whether it be whatever that is, you, you know for you what that is, that stick, that trick. That trap. He says, don't be trapped by that. I'm telling you ahead of time. I'm with you. I love you. I've triumphed. You'll see it. Wait. And that's the case for Daniel and his people. That's the case for us, you see, as well. There's a sense in which Jesus says to us, Remember, I've given you life. When others come to take that away, and when it appears as if they're taking it away, your very life, when it seems like they're succeeding at that, to take away your very life, remember, I promised you eternal life. They can't take that away. You see, what we're learning as we work our way through Daniel, I think, is that evil will have its day, but God will have his way. I know that's a corny rhyme, but it's really true. Evil will have its day, but God ultimately, you see, will have his, his way. Because, you see, as we read through the scripture, uh, we do get a sense that one like this Antiochus is here, even now, and in, the, in our future, you know, uh, the Apostle John speaks of it, and he's the one uh, we have to blame for this expression, Antichrist. He's the one who, who uses it. In, 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 in 1 John in chapter 2 and verse 18, uh, the Apostle writes, Children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard, that the Antichrist is coming. I'm sorry, no. That Antichrist is coming, not the Antichrist. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. You see, these ones that are against Christ and, and stand over and against, against Christ. We can see that in Antiochus. We can see that not only was he against God, but he, he put himself up over against God. He says, no, no, not that way, my way. I'm going to take away that way and I'm going to give you my way. You must follow my way if we're going to be united as a kingdom. Then, then, then it's my way. And you see, that's what Antichrist does. It's not just Christ is wrong. But this other way that stands against him is right. Don't follow this way, but follow that way, you see. And so he says, John says, even then, first century, John says, you know, you've heard that Antichrist is coming. Well, let me tell you, he's all over the place. It's, it's here, all over the place. And he says, now let me des- describe Antichrist for you. Verse 22, who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This very one that says, no, 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 it's not this way. You need him. It's not through Jesus. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. It's it's really true, you see. 
Sometimes we see it clearly, sometimes we don't see it. But it's simply true. And so, Daniel, ultimately, to say, when this happens, you've been warned, don't fall away. Jesus, when this happens, you've been warned, don't fall away. It's really real, it's really here. And so, Paul would speak of it like this in 2 Thessalonians and and, uh, and uh, chapter 2. He would say, uh, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or ob- object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And the response says, we've talked about this. And why did we talk about this? We talked about this, so when it happens, and it's sort of always happening, perhaps a day will come when it's overt and in, 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 in one man, but, 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 but you get it. So I'm telling you these things, so that you're not naive, no fine print in the gospel. It's real. I'm being honest with you. When you come to faith in Christ, know this is what you're getting in the context of your life with God and your life with others. And so he says, so that, and you know what's restraining him now, uh, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He says, it's just like, you know, this, this, this Antiochus guy is kind of a bit of a picture, isn't he? He just, it, it, it's, it's so subtle. It, it's, it's so sort of not dramatic. I mean, I, I would like in this passage, this vision that Daniel saw to say, you know, he got blown to smithereens. You know, they, he was running up the mountains and, and thousands were after him and they, they caught him and they just tore him limb from limb. It doesn't, it says, well, you know, he, he was just taken out. He was just taken out. Not by our power. He was just taken out. You go, Phew. same kind of thing. He's just taken out. Someone once said, you know, if you're at the movies, if you're watching the end of the world happen and you go out to get popcorn, in the moment the Lord returns, you'll miss it. All right? It'll just happen. And boom, it's good. It happened. You'll come. And that, that's the impression, at least, that you get as you read him. Um, uh, and the lawless one uh, will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming and so forth and so on. You see, this Antiochus, what he did was that he, he dealt with the very heart of the people, their worship. And he dealt with the very heart of God, the worship of his people. He took away the burnt offerings. And we know in the days of, of pre-Jesus, in the days of the temple, that these daily burnt offerings, morning and evening, were of great value. Because you see, they were a way to say, for God to say to his people on a daily basis... If you're going to live in my presence, you must be holy. But you're not. But I love you. And so I have the, the option of simply destroying you because you're not holy and you can't be in my, temp, in my presence. But here's what I'll do. I'll take a substitute. I'll take one that's perfect. I'll take one animal that doesn't need to die. There's no reason for this good, perfect, unblemished animal to die. There's no reason at all. You should look at this animal and say, we shouldn't kill that animal. We should keep that one. 
But, but, but no, I'm going to take this animal that shouldn't die and I'm going to take him and he's going to die and he's going to die in your place. And so that all the time you'll know that you're forgiven your sins. All the time you'll know that you're to be holy, but you're not. But I love you so that I'm going to take this one in your stead so you can live in my presence. And do you realize that they would smell that every day? Every day they would smell that coming out of the temple. And they would know, I'm forgiven my sins. I'm not holy. God loves me. He's taken this one in my place. I can live in his presence. Now, if you remove that from a people, that understanding, you remove that from a people, then they begin to wonder, does God really accept me? They begin to wonder, how should I be accepted by God? It must be by my own righteousness. I better do better. And only if I can do better will I, will I really be accepted by God. And so I need to be self-righteous so that God will accept me. But then I know deep down I'm not. And so I live in the midst of that guilt. And I live wondering whether or not God will hear my prayers, whether God really will be with me. And so my whole world is rocked just by that, you see. And then it's just, just a desecration of the sanctuary. It throws it over so that there's no place for the people to come together. There's no place for the people to meet. There's no place for the people to gather and do this together so that they're not only saying, this is just for me, but this is for us. And so they can see that I'm not alone, but but we're all in this together. You take that away from a people, you isolate a people to where they think it all depends upon them and then they're utterly destroyed. The truth is gone. And so you can see then that, 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 Antiochus thinks he's going to have the last laugh, that he's going to be the one who overthrows the very power of God. And God says, no. Oh, for a time. You see the slaughter. We we see all of that. So as you read this passage in Daniel, I don't know if they did during that time, but they should have. And if they, they read this passage in Daniel during that time, they should have said, okay, we know how this is going to end. We know all about this. Okay, we've sinned and maybe this guy's come in to deal with us uh, as, a, as an agent of God. But, but here we are now. And so God will be with us. He will be victorious. His kingdom will come. And it's the same for us, you see. We don't, we don't have sacrifices that we, that we make anymore, but, but, but we're reminded of this one, aren't we, all the time? In fact, every time we come to worship, we're reminded of the very fact that Jesus has died for us. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Never forget this. Never forget this. You see, if, if for a moment, we forget what Christ has done. If for a moment we forget that to be in his presence, the perfect one, the one who didn't deserve to die, actually died in our place, then we too will begin to wonder, does he really love me? How can I be safe in his presence? It must be, I guess, by doing the best I can. It must be, I guess, by, by self-righteousness. It must be, I guess, by proving that I'm, I'm worthy to be in his presence. But, but yet I know that I'm not. And so always to live with that sense of, of, of guilt, with that sense of, of loss, with that sense of, of, of wondering. But, but, but he says, no, 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 no. Never, never, you see. And, and the evil one is constantly telling us, it's not Jesus. Don't worry about Jesus. There's another way, really? No. 
And we don't have this sanctuary, a temple, in the same way that there was a sanctuary and there was a temple. In those days, we have this, we call it the sanctuary. But it, it, it serves a purpose, and that is a place for us to come and to be together. So when we do this, when we think about the fact that Christ has died for us, and we taste it and we smell it and all that, we realize that he has done that, and we do it together, and we look around and we go, it isn't just about me, it's about us. I'm not in this alone. We're all together. Look at what he's done. It really is a kingdom. That he's brought. It really is, you see. And this is the truth. We need to be reminded of the truth. We said so many times that the way God has wired us is that one day in seven we need to stop and we need to gaze upon him. And if we don't, we'll die. We stop and we gaze upon him. And it's, again, a reminder, no matter what happened in the last six days, we come together and we say, oh, yeah, that's what's true. Oh, yeah, that's what's true. And so when Jesus was with his disciples on that fateful night, he took bread enough to give him thanks. He said, this is my body, which is for you don't forget don't forget do this remembering me and in the same way Jesus took the cup that was there and again after giving thanks can you hear that anybody hear that being poured. I don't know. You probably can't. Can you hear that being poured? Imagine it being poured. It's a great sound. Right? So this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Don't forget that. Don't let anybody ever take that away from you. Always know that. Think about that all the time because you see, that opens everything. Forgiveness of sins. Oh, yeah, I'm not worthy, but the worthy one died for me so that my sins could be forgiven. The one that didn't need to die, shouldn't have died, no reason for him to die, ah, died for me. And that means everything. That, that, that means I'm accepted by God. That means I can pray. That means I'm assured. That means no matter what happens, what Antiochus comes into my life, for our lives, no matter what they take, no matter what they destroy, I'm not going to be tricked. I'm going to believe, and I'm going to know that I have life. And no one, nothing, neither heights, nor depths, nor powers, nor things to come, nor anything in all creation can separate me. But we mustn't forget the sacrifice that was made. And we mustn't neglect coming together. Because when we remember together the sacrifice, then we know the truth. And that's what sets us free. Free to really live. Let's pray. Father. Pray for me, for us. 
that we'd see it, that we'd believe it, that we'd on this day taste it and smell it and hear it and feel it. And so I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and we'd set it apart in such a way that at this moment in time it's in some sense for us. Different, oh, it's still bread and juice. But different by way of how we see it and how we smell it and how we taste it, how we touch it, touch it all of that. Different in that sense that right now as we, as we come to this table and we pick up this bread and we dip in the cup and we taste it, we, 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 we're thinking not of bread and juice and food, but Jesus. And we're thinking about his death and we're thinking about why he died and we're thinking about his resurrection and we're thinking about his ascension and his rule and reign. We're thinking about his spirit who's come to live among us and we're thinking about about the time when he'll return and, and all we put right and we're thinking that nothing can separate us from his love and we're thinking that therefore nothing will trick us. We'll persevere to the end. We're thinking of all of that. God, bring all of that to mind. And put a spring in our step, a smile on our face, enable us then, God, to walk with you in humble obedience, in joyful obedience, giving praise to you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done that we would worship. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, this table, you know, isn't the table of our church, Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight, without hope except in his sovereign mercy, all those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners. And all those who desire then as believers in him to trust him. And walk with him. If that's true for you, I invite you to come these two sections down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup. And remember Jesus. Please come.